Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. The Melbourne International Comedy Festival is literally just around the corner. It all kicks off officially next week. It's kind of like a juggernaut of laughter that rolls over everything else. And for about four weeks, it feels like there's no visual art, there's no theatre, there's nothing but comedy in Melbourne. And I swear, laughing every night for weeks on end has got to be good for you physically, mentally and more. I'm joined in the studio by comedian Rowan Thambar, who is doing a couple of shows in the Comedy Festival. Rowan, welcome to Triple R. Oh, thank you so much for having me. What a pleasure to be here. Now, your main show, you've got a kind of uh, a second show that we'll talk about, but you're performing... uh, slash presenting a show called Nothing Deep, Just Good Times. Absolutely. Now, now is that a response to the fact, uh, even just the title alone, we've seen, I guess, a, uh, the, the Hannah Gadsby effect, the Nanette mm-hmm. effect of mm-hmm. people going, oh, comedy should be sad and powerful and have a, a potent message and social change and I'm going to make the audience weep and laugh at the same time. And we've seen quite a few kind of, there's been sad comedy and challenging comedy. Yep. Is this your response to that? Kind of uh, literally just uh, going, just good times. I, yeah, I think. Yes, but also I think it's more internal because I'm actually someone who is a big fan of that style of comedy. Um, I love getting personal. I love being emotional. And um, the show started because um, my sister came to visit me uh, in Melbourne and she lives in Brisbane and she told me, she's like, oh, I almost didn't come, Ro, because like sometimes you just... You can be too emotional. I just want to have fun with you. <laughs> and that was just a slap in the face because I was like, I'm here trying to pursue stand-up comedy. And, and, and my, one of my, like, my best friend for my whole life just tells me that I'm too sad sometimes. I'm like, no, I can be funny. Um, so I feel like it's a personal response to that. But I think for, for the show, it's, I just want to give people a really good time. So, uh, yeah, so that's where it kind of comes from. It's almost... Uh... Like, for so long we're hearing that oh, men aren't, don't talk about their emotions, kind of, <laughs> they keep it all locked down. And, and then when you do, it's kind of like your own sister's going, oh, no, too much. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm unfortunately in the minority of men who speak too much about their feelings, apparently. Um, like, I, like, I'm trying to get really good at small talk, which, I mean, as a radio presenter, you must be incredible at it like in the right frame of mind yes and then there's other times where i'm at an opening night of a show and i just want to hide behind a pot plant yeah okay it's it's such an interesting thing and i think maybe post pandemic as well we kind of just want to have a little bit more fun like there's so much like uh uh, stuff going on in the world it's just like like this feels like we just want some levity but but I think the problem is is like I'm so aware of my mortality, the issues of the world that like I find it hard to like because what I want to say in conversation sometimes and what happens, um, what I have to say are like two very different things. Like what I like like because I spend a lot of time at parties right now talking to my wife's friends' husband. I don't know if you've ever been in the situation where you talk to your partner's partner. Like it's. It's a crazy situation where you're cornered in this in this room and someone's like trying to talk to you about like the Commonwealth Games and you're like 
why? Like, what? What? You think I have a hot take on discus? Like, what? Why? <laughs> yeah. Okay. They're too round, and I don't understand why it's different to frisbee. But anyway, and then, but then, what happens out of my like? What happens in my head? I, I just go along with it. I'm like, oh yeah, you know, Cody Simpson. He's both a swimmer and a musician. That's wild. How can he be so talented in two completely different areas? But in my head, I'm like, well, when are we going to talk about the panic attacks you're having at work? Because that's what your wife told my wife, who told me, you know? It's just like, come on, Dan. Like, what are you, what are you hiding from? Small talk is a really weird social ritual and, yeah, definitely Bizarre. often used to mask and hide, um, which, again, taps into that idea of you being perhaps too openly emotional and mm-hmm. kind of having to train yourself not to be. How did, to segue from that though, how did you train yourself to be funny? Were you naturally kind of, were you the class clown, for example? Uh, and did people say comedy should be your thing? Or was it something that you just watched and loved and went, I want to try and do that? Um, yeah, it was, uh, no, I, I was definitely not the class clown. I was like the quiet little kid at the front who would uh, study really hard and get good grades and didn't want to really um, uh, rock the boat too much. Uh, and then stand-up for me, I think, was just a, it was an outlet. Um, it was like a creative outlet. I always uh, played piano growing up. My parents were, made sure we were all very well-rounded. We did a lot of like speech and drama and that kind of thing. And so, uh, yeah, it, stand-up was just like this way that I could kind of speak my mind but I think the accessibility of just being able to get on stage and, and, and talk, and that's all you needed, and you just need your thoughts and your ideas to entertain people, that's kind of where I, like, found that. Yeah. yeah. And did you find that in Newcastle, which is where you grew up? I grew up in Newcastle. Don't hold it against me, but uh, yes. Uh... I, lo- I think, <laughs> look, Novocastrians are great, and Newey is a lovely, lovely city. So it is. Yeah. It's beautiful. Um, we've got lovely beaches. And we're trying to get as good coffee as you guys have, but um, it's not as good, but we're on our way, I reckon. Does it have a comedy scene? Or did you have to go to Sydney to start performing in uh, kind of clubs there? Or Yeah, it did. Um, there was a man by the name of Soam Chopra who used to run uh, comedy at the Ori, um, which was an institution for a long time. Um, he passed away recently, which was quite sad. Um, but he was one of the first people to give me a gig. Um, and uh, that's kind of how it started. But now um, it's really grown, actually. Um, there are a couple of lads who are running the Newcastle Comedy Club um, and uh, doing an excellent job. That's been up and running just uh, for about a year and a bit now. And they have the likes of Will Anderson, um, but also up-and-coming acts every um, every week. And uh, the they get 60 people to an open mic, which is... In Australian comedy, unheard of. It is insane. So um, Newcastle's really growing in that area and they really love comedy. So I'm excited to see it keep growing. But you left Newcastle and have come to Melbourne. I left... I did. I, I left Melbourne... Uh, I left, sorry, I left Newcastle to come to Melbourne. I was mis- I loved living in the city. Like, it's such a big, exciting place. And, um, you know, this. I mean, the size of the scene here is so great and the amount of gigs you can do is is phenomenal and so i think for someone who's working on their craft trying to get better every day um yeah melbourne made heaps of sense i guess it's the the thing about any city with a thriving scene that yeah it pulls people in from all over the country perhaps sometimes all over the world there's certainly quite a few visiting international comedians that have ended up moving here because they've fallen in love and married someone for example so totally um but does that make it then harder to stand out as a comedian in a uh, a larger city with a larger scene? Yeah, I think so. Um, 
uh, but also it forces you to be better. I think it's that thing of competition, right? And and um, you, in order to stand out, you do have to be um, uh, you have to be better. And so I think that's also one of the things that draws people that are really serious about doing stand up to places like Melbourne. How do you get better at comedy? Is it just through practice and rehearsal, or uh, tears, <laughs> crying? Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, practice. I think. People forget writing, the importance of the writing aspect of it. Um, I am not someone who is good at writing on stage, which is the idea of like just getting up, talking about a topic, making it funny and honing it. Um, I have to sit, write, like gather my thoughts. And so, yeah, that's, I think that's, it's, it's, it's kind of 50-50, but people kind of think sometimes it's 70-30 skewed toward more performing. Rowan, you're performing in Nothing Deep, Just Good Times as part of the Melbourne International Comedy Festival at Trades Hall in the old council chamber. Yeah. But you're also doing another show. Do you want to – let's quickly talk about that. You're doing a double bill with uh, Nick Robertson. Yes, that's correct. So um, I'm kind of uh, uh, compartmentalising my two different vibes. So my solo show, Nothing Deep, Good Times, is just fun. People who love comedy – who just want to have a good laugh with their friends and family, that's the show for you. If you do like something more earnest, something a little bit more um, thought-provoking, um, then Earnestly Said Than Done is the show I'm doing with my mate Nick. And um, it's kind of a storytelling show, so it also kind of uh, touches on um, a different style of stand-up uh, entirely. And so uh, really, it's really, yeah, both Nick and I are telling some really some really sincere stories that are very funny but also a bit hard for us to kind of say out loud so we're, it's a bit challenging in that way but it's also very exciting it's something i've definitely noticed with the festival that comedians are yeah you, there's the main show that is your kind of main form but then people doing kid shows for example as a way of kind of oh, broadening their audience bringing in more money or in this instance as you say going oh well one show is just the feel good stand up and then somewhere else to experiment and 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 explore is that do you think that's becoming more common in the comedy scene i think so and i think I think that um, stand-up as an art form has grown so much. Like, uh, you know, comedians selling out arenas. I mean, Steve Martin was the first person to do it back in the day, but now it's becoming more and more regular. And I think as the uh, genre has grown, the styles and the form of it has as well. Like, there's so many different uh, sub-genres within it, much like music, like where you've got rap and you've got country and you've got rock. Like, you've got all these different styles of, of comedy. And I think that... Um, as um, artists, like we all, want, we all want to just try and experiment with new and different kind of genres within stand-up. So it's uh, yeah, it's really exciting to see. Yeah, it's certainly one of the things I love about the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. Is yes, you get kind of stand-up as a genre uh, doing its own thing, and then the variations of it. But then you've got sketch comedy, and you've got improv, and you've got clowning, and yes. physical comedy, and and. Uh, theatrical comedy, like um, I know there'll be a few theatre productions on programs specifically uh, because they're comedic. So yeah, there's a, a yeah. really broad range to choose from. Yeah, and um, I think um, yeah, it, there's, there is really something for everyone. Um, spending time on the website or going through the guide and like just reading the things, seeing the people um, is such a great way of like um, yeah, getting a taste for what comedy really is because I think what we think about it in our heads and also what we see on social media is also so different to what um, what some people are bringing to places like the Comedy Festival. So it's very unique in that space. 
So your show, Nothing Deep, Just Good Times, is on at uh, Trades Hall in Carlton from Thursday the 30th of March, so next Thursday through until Sunday the 9th of April. And you can go to comedyfestival.com.au for more details to book for Nothing Deep, Just Good Times. But, Ron, given so many shows and the diversity of comedy, any kind of peers, friends, colleagues, rivals, uh, people you admire that you want to mention? Here's a list of all the people you shouldn't see at this year's comedy <laughs> festival. Uh, uh, no, um, I would really recommend um, Suren Jayamani. His, um, his show, uh, Bag of uh, Vita, or Vita, I don't know how to pronounce it, but Suren's one of these uh, stand-ups who have been around for uh, a while and who's just honed their craft, honed their craft, and... Uh, He's fantastic. I would really recommend seeing him. Um, I'd also recommend seeing Zach Dyer. He and I did Comedy Zone together back in the day, and he is a very funny man uh, from North Queensland, and uh, he brings such a unique uh, spin on what it means to be uh, an Aussie bloke. His show's called uh, How, to, How to Be a Man, um, which, yeah, which is really, which is, I've seen it um, bits and pieces together, and it's, it's very funny. Uh, and um, I'd also recommend uh, uh, Jordan Barr as well. I really like her. She's she's kind of uh, she, this is her second show at the festival, and she's just got such a unique style and rhythm and pace. And uh, I think that people will really enjoy uh, what she has to say. She's fantastic. Great. Fantastic. That helps us kind of whittle down the vast kind of pile of, uh, of, of names. Uh, Rowan Thamba is performing Nothing Deep, Just Good Times at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival at Trades Hall from next Thursday, the 30th of March, through to Sunday, the 9th of April. Mondays, Tuesdays at 6.30pm, Thursdays through to Saturdays at 6.30pm as well, Sunday at 5.30pm. Tickets just 20 to 25 bucks. You can book at comedyfestival.com. .com.au or you can just rock up to Trades Hall next week and buy tickets at the door. And Rowan's also performing with Nick Robertson in Earnestly Said Than Done, which is on at the Motley Bauhaus in Carlton from the 17th to the 23rd of April. Again, you can go to comedyfestival.com.au for more details. The festival running from the 29th of March to the 23rd of April. Folks, get your laughing into gear. Rowan, thanks for coming in. Thanks so much. Appreciate appreciate you for having me. Thank you. Triple R. My next guest has made a profession of spoken word and poetry and Nathan Kerno, welcome to Triple R. I didn't know you were a playwright as well. I know, Richard. Hey, how are you? Thanks but for good, having me. Good to see you. Good to have you on. Because yeah, I know you best as a poet and spoken word performer and editor and teacher of poetry. Yep. And suddenly, sudden, <laughs> somehow you've written a play. I have been in that other world of poetry for a long, long time, like a, like a doomed Orpheus. Um, it's been good. Um, apart I did from the doom. Apart from the doom. Well, a bit of doom is good. Uh, I did have a play on way back in 2009, I think it was. And, um, and yeah, I kind of moved away from that and went further into the world of spoken word and poetry. But um, I'm back. It's a real lovely surprise. And thanks to Kevin Hopkins for, for bringing me back. He's, he's kind of like my Tarantino, you know. I'm like Travolta and he's suddenly brought me back to the world of theatre. So. so the play you've written is called Mystery in a Blimp. Uh, mm. And I get the feeling it's uh, being programmed and performed during the comedy festival for a good reason. Uh, you're taking the piss out of independent theatre in this independent theatre production. <laughs> I am. I am. I, um, 
I'm trying to break all the rules, the sensible rules of playwriting that I was brought up with, uh, Richard. You know, uh, when I was emerging as a writer, they said, you know, don't, don't write yourself into the play. Uh, don't set things on a couch because it's a really lazy theatrical setting. Um, don't have a MacGuffin that goes nowhere. Don't have one-dimensional characters who, who have long monologues of no consequence. And I thought, I want to do all those things. And I want to make it a really, really fun show to prove that you can do it in playwriting, right? There's no reason for them to be rules. Um, you can do anything. So that's what we're on about. We're on about fun, absurdity, and hopefully everyone has a great night. Well, it's one of those things that you have to learn the fundamentals and the basics mm. before you can break the rules. And so clearly you've had the experience in writing over a couple of decades uh, that you feel confident enough to go, right, no, we can, we can throw the rule book out the window now or possibly set it on fire and dance around it pointing and laughing. That's right. And I think we need that kind of fire to dance around at the moment after COVID and lockdown. And, and we were all just wanting some fun with an audience again, weren't we? And... Um, here it is. This is what we've been waiting for. The blimp is about to take off. Tell us a little bit more about the, I guess, the plot of the play, if you will, if it has a plot. Well, I should probably start at the start. And according to the Mystery in a Blimp program, uh, Richard, I, I languished in the jungles of Guatemala following surgery by untrained field doctors. And uh, I languished there in the stifling heat in that that tent city they called a hospital. And uh, my only company was a small boy in that tent. His name was Leon. And uh, he suffered a piranha attack three weeks earlier and lost both his legs. And Leon recognised me. He said, Nathan, poet, playwright, recite us a play that will lift our spirits here in this, this jungle hellhole. And so I did. I, I began to imagine Richard and um, Mystery in a Blimp was born. Our laughter became our only insect repellent um, and our friendship grew thicker than jungle vines. Leon is dead now. It sounds like a tragic story. <laughs> it was piranhas. Yes. <laughs> Again. But, but come along, remember Leon, and laugh because he's dead. The piranhas got him. Why, <laughs> why create an absurdist theatrical comedy? Mm. I think after my experience of my first play on uh, Disney on Dry Ice, it was called, where um, some people stole the, the frozen, cryogenically frozen head of Walt Disney and held it for ransom. After something that silly in the comedy festival way back, uh, I wanted to... I, I guess I was frustrated with fringe theatre and the harsh realities of fringe theatre and, and what you could do. I was, I was wanting to think big. And this was, I guess, a reaction to that. This is where Mystery in a Blimp was, was truly born. Um, I wanted to think big and I wanted to create and I wanted to break all those rules... Um, and so, yeah, I, I guess that's what it's exploring. Um, my character, Herschel, he, he wakes up on a blimp. He has no idea how he got there and where he's going. And none of the passengers are any help whatsoever. Just imagine waking up on a blimp, Richard. That's pretty confronting, right? <laughs> Particularly if it's in flight as opposed it's, it's to more. It, it's totally in flight. And poor Herschel has got to figure it out all by himself. Uh, no thanks to these ridiculous passengers on board. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's where we take off. Okay. Now, you said the play is a response to the harsh realities of fringe theatre. What do you mean by those harsh realities and how does this play react or respond to them or, yeah. or break away from those realities, apart from the whole blimp? Well, I was talking to a producer once and um, he asked me how many, how many characters are, are in this other play I had and I said, oh, about 12. Uh, and he said, oh, 12's fine as long as none of the actors want to get paid. And I went, oh, 
I hadn't thought of that, right? Um, if there's a lot of characters in it, no one's going to put it on. No one's going to put it up because no one's going to get paid and be involved in it. This is why we always get the endless two-hander, three-hander, solo. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And I'm sick of those, right? Um, I mean, they're, they're good. And I don't want to yeah, poo-poo two-handers, but um, I want to do something more. And so I was really frustrated with that, with these realities of what we can and can't do on stage. Um, as much as I love Fringe Theatre, I mean, don't get me wrong, it, it's, it's incredible. And, and, and thanks to Fringe Theatre and people who believe in me, people who work in independent theatre, I've got something to put on um, as a result. But, um, yeah, as a writer, it does become frustrating. Um, in terms of writing... Given that you write short stories, you write poetry, you've written uh, these two plays and a couple of short plays as well, mm. um, how do, when you have an idea, how do you know what the right form or genre is for it? Yeah, that's a good question. Sometimes I've written poems and I've come back to them and realised, oh, hang on, there's actually a kernel in there that, that could translate and could cross over into this other form. Um, sometimes I've written plays and I've realised, yeah, no, that's... That's a poem. Um, the kernel, the, the idea, the core idea is that is best suited in, in poetry form. Look, you don't. You don't know when you start off. And that's the glorious, wonderful, awful thing about writing is that there are no guarantees that you're getting it right. Um, some, there's only retrospect, right? There's only time. Time is really your only friend as a writer. And, and time will give you that gift where you go back to it later and you go, ah, so the core of that was actually about, you know, my dad or my this this trauma I had, and I, it's better to explore that. I'll, I'll just put that short play aside, and I'll explore that in a poem. Um, it is time, and that's the infuriating thing about it. You don't know if you're doing it right at the start. <laughs> now you've been writing for over twenty years, mm. uh, and I wanted to. I guess I. In terms of performing, given that you're acting in this play as well as writing it, you've done a lot of spoken word performance. Have you done a lot of acting? And what are the, the differences between performing uh, a poem mm. or reading a poem to bring it to life versus acting on stage with other actors? Talk to us about that experience. Yeah, so when you write yourself into a play, um, you've got to be in it. So I am acting in this play unless I'm not and I have an actor acting me. Um, and this is exactly what the play is about. Um, what, is, what is real in fringe theatre? Um, so I am in it, kind of. Um, and just, if, look, if I'm not, doesn't mean it's untrue, right? <laughs> Everything's made up, right? Even plays are made up, but it doesn't mean they're not truly happening in front of you, right, Richard? Um, this is the slippery world we live in. Nathan, in you're, you're doing my head in, in a good way. <laughs> good, good. Talk to us about the cast wait, of the show. And wait the... until you're on the blimp, Richard. <laughs> oh, my God. Talk to us about the, the cast and the creatives you're working with with this play. I'm really lucky. Um, as I said, Kevin Hopkins, um, this guy's brought me back and, um, and it's thanks to his long friendship with me that, that yeah, I'm back in the theatre world. Uh, he's directing the play doing an amazing job we have an amazing cast who I've been watching in rehearsals all week um, Brian Davison, Mia Langren, Claire Nichols, Gabe Partington, Lockie Watts and Christina Wells. Um, I don't know why I'm so lucky 
to have such an amazing team uh, after so many years. And, yeah, it, it's all thanks to these, I don't know, these, these champions. You, you look back on, on your career and you think, if it wasn't for these key people who believed in me and who still support me for some reason, um, then, then nothing would happen. Um, so, yeah, I think that's something to do with time as well. As, as you get older, you realise who the key people are and were and that you kind of don't deserve it. Um, even though you've been working really hard, right, and you've been creating your own luck, thanks to these people... Um, yeah, you have this these amazing opportunities. I have this amazing cast, amazing director. Um, and when you realise that, I think, in your career, you realise, I have to give back, right? I have to be one of those people for someone else. Um, and this is how the arts continues. This is, this is the community. And, um, yeah, I, I hope I've given back. I, I hope to be a champion to, to other people too. Even by writing a play, you are you are giving back. You are creating work for for actors and designers. And I did want to ask about the design of mystery in a blimp. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how do you create a blimp on stage? Well, look, I have to shout out my amazing designer, um, Greg Carroll, who's been making theatre for so many years, um, and and he's one of my champions as well. Um, if not for him, I kind of wouldn't be here either. So uh, how do you create a blimp on stage? We have this gigantic parachute inside um, the Bluestone Church art space. Um, we have these amazing seats and fans and it's going to look beautiful. It's going to be, there's going to be billowing, Richard. There will be billowing inside the theatre. Um, and we also have a, a beautiful surprise that I can't talk too much about, but it's going to swallow one of our actors. I look forward to finding out more. I've, I've said too much already. <laughs> the Shift Theatre production of Mystery in a Blimp, written by my guest Nathan Kerno, is on, as he said, at the Bluestone Church Art Space, which is uh, Hyde Street in Footscray. It's running from... The 23rd. 23rd, which is today. Tonight's the night. Uh-huh. We, we take off tonight. So uh, from tonight, the 23rd of March, through until Sunday, the 2nd of April, uh, you can go to www.theshifttheatre.com for details and you can book by going to www.trybooking.com forward slash cfjpw <laughs> if you haven't written that down just go to theshifttheatre.com and you'll find a link there to all the booking details to see mystery in a blimp an absurdist piece of independent theatre that is satirising the world of independent theatre while simultaneously celebrating it. Nathan Kurno, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Richard. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Time for us to talk visual arts now. I'm joined in the studio by Associate Professor Simone Slee, who's the head of the uh, School of Visual Art at the Victorian College of the Arts. And what uh, Simone has joined us to talk about is an exhibition currently showing in the Fiona and Sydney Meyer Gallery in Southbank called It's Not You, It's Me. It's an exhibition of self-portraiture by the staff of visual art at the VCA. 
Simone, thank you for joining us. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, Richard. How often do the staff uh, exhibit work as opposed to the students? I'm used to regular student exhibitions and graduate exhibitions and showcases and so forth, but... Well, um, Richard, the staff are exhibiting all the time in all sorts of locations and, in fact, there's, we've got staff at the minute in Melbourne now and they show in galleries and students often come to those locations. But in the art school itself, because the Fiona and Sydney Maya Gallery is really kind of the core of uh, the of VCA art where the world meets uh, our art students and our art students meet the world. So we often have, you know, fabulous international artists at the Fiona and Sydney Maya Gallery. We will have PhD students showing there and we'll also from time to time, but not that often, have... And this is one of the... Maybe it's been five years since we've had a full-blown um, exhibition of the staff at VCA Art. Which is, must be a, a fun opportunity, A, for the staff to collectively show their work, to come together in that way, because I know what any workplace is like. You, sometimes you're so busy with your teaching, your, your, whatever you're looking after, the students, that you don't get to see your colleagues work and talk to them that often. So to have this opportunity to come together and to focus on portraiture. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Richard, look, exactly. And um, in fact, I mean, we do see each other's work because we show around, but what's really critical and important about VCA art is that we really focus on... Um, uh, teaching emerging young artists and it's artists who teach artists. So we have, obviously, in the academic world, you have academics and professionals, but all of the people who work with our students are practising artists. And so when the students come in, they're coming into a field of artists and they're coming into a community of artists. And I think that's really important for us because we really know what it means to make art when we're teaching art and the kind of vulnerabilities that go along in that space and the kinds of risks you have to take. Well, I wanted to pick up on that idea of vulnerability because this is an opportunity for the students to critique their teachers, which, and as you say, I'm sure the students are regularly going to see, they'll, they'll be going to Melbourne now, for example, and looking at some of their teachers' work. They'll be familiar with some of it. But the opportunity to, to study and critique collectively, um, in some ways, is the staff making themselves vulnerable? Well, I think every time an artist puts a work out there, it is a position and often when you as an artist are making work, you're not quite sure where it's going to lead you and sometimes you're as surprised by the artwork um, as anybody else. So indeed, in fact, I think all of us, I mean, an art school is a very rigorous place and we do actually care for one another in that space and we do also um, need to hold ourselves account to that as well. So, yes, I must say, um, I always feel like when my students are coming to my show, I feel like I've really got to, you know, make the mark and to take it to that next level. And that's what art is, you know, it leads you as an artist to that next place. And it's, yeah, artist integrity and rigour is really important. And Simone, why focus on portraiture? Uh, for the subject of this exhibition? Um, thanks, that's a great question. And as you know, David, Dr David Sequeira, he's the director of the Fiona and Sydney Maya Gallery, and it was his concept. Um, uh, the show is titled It's uh, Not You, uh, It's Me, and it was really about foregrounding who these people are that the students are coming in to have a dialogue with because they're joining our community. Self-portraiture is an interesting, and as you know, a very long genre in the practice of art. And, you know, funnily enough, you could probably put nearly everybody's artwork in another exhibition with a different sense of content um, than self-portraiture. But what's lovely about the title 
title for the show, which brings people together, is it's kind of a double entendre. It's not, you know, on the one hand, you could read it, you know, it's not about you, it's actually all about me, which, you know, really does reflect perhaps some of the contemporary conditions of the way we um, performatively um, manufacture ourselves in a social media space and the whole notion of the uh, selfie. Yet, on the other hand, in the flip side, you know, often it's not you, it's me. It kind of lays the position of fault or blame or vulnerability on the individual and not the other. So there is a lovely sense of it could be both things. So portraiture is, self-portraiture is, you know, obviously that full genre of which many artists have practised, but there's also students and artists often use their own bodies in their artwork, so therefore it naturally kind of is a, a representation of themselves or what their artwork is doing. And then sometimes in other instances, uh, artworks that actually reflect the engagement with others is really also what produces who we are as people. Tell us about some of the individual works and the the styles of uh, self-portraiture that are in It's Not You, It's Me. I understand, for example, that Kate just has uh, a textile work made from her own clothes. Yes, that's right. It's a very beautiful um, um, hanging in the space, a large black hanging, all these black outfits that she's actually worn. So as you mentioned, there's all sorts of artworks using all sorts of mediums. There's some traditional painting, there's conceptual artworks, uh, there's video, there's um, performance through video. Um, So there's a whole range of different things there. A lovely work actually in the space um, also is this work by George Criddle where they've Um, taken the floor of their studio, they've rolled it up in a ball, makes this beautiful platonic sphere on a little plinth. So um, George isn't present, but her DNA will be present on that floor that's in the object. So it's also about a space that's inhabited and transformed into another form. And do you have a piece in the exhibition yourself? I do, Richard. I do, of course I do. Um, I have a actually, um, you know, I pondered over what to do I decided actually to put a quite an old work in it's a video uh, work and really a uh, work that came out of my masters when I was a student so back from my gosh it's over 20 years old 1999 and I did reconfigure it but it was really it's a video work where I'm uh, working with some large-scale origami um, paper where it performs me and I perform in until uh, the limits of the materiality um, break up so it's a, yes, it's a sort of dynamic uh, video work. It was also an artwork which actually when I made it totally freaked me out. I thought I was one kind of artist and then I found out that this artwork taught me I, I was another kind of artist and how I had to learn what the artwork was telling me about my practice. Because um, from what I know of you, uh, I know you have a sculptural practice, yeah. for example. So the, shifting to video or, or to... I know, think you've also done installation work as well. That's right. I love the the, the fluidity of of an artist's career. The fact that yeah, I might be interviewing somebody who is a photographer, but they've suddenly started doing something new and something different, and that's the focus of the conversation. There's an unpredictability and a, a liveliness to con- to any art practice. I think that's right. I mean, art takes you on a journey. And often we, and whilst I would say I'm still a sculptor, I come from a conceptual basis of sculpture, or I come from the ideas of sculpture. So things like material, what is a material? 
what are its limits, how long before it will break up and collapse, what will hold it up. Other photographers in the show, we've got some beautiful works by, for example, uh, it's a lovely work from 2003 by Sonia Pahoki, which is called It's Me. It's a video work and a lot like um, some of the other works, it um, actually has images proposing um, such as clipping between such as a gorilla or a lion or an aeroplane or a group of people questioning who's who. Is that you or is that me? There's a real broad range of work in there, which also reinforces that uh, self-portraiture is an evolving and living art form because often if people think of portraiture, they may think of, I don't know, um, uh, very kind of classical works, heavy gold frames kind of... uh, yeah. And this is very different and, and very... It's interesting that it's a contemporary exhibition, but as you say, your work itself is 20 years old. Is there an equal range of very new to older works across the exhibition? Yeah, indeed. And another really great example of that is a lovely work by Alex Danko. He has a fabulously satirical um, conceptual practice, and that is a mirror. And written in uh, on the mirror is, "'Warning, objects are dumber than they appear.'" And so, of course, when you're looking at the mirror, who you see is yourself. So often it's the viewer who constructs the work. And there's a very funny play in that work about who's looking at who and what defines um, what art could be. And, um, yeah, so that's a really another very good example. Simone, you used the phrase earlier that um, art takes you on a journey. Mm-hmm. What kind of journey do you think viewers of this exhibition will go on? Oh, that's such a good question. Well, I think firstly our viewers are our students and then there's also the public. So in terms of our students and our researchers, and particularly young students, they in this exhibition can begin to think about, well, where do they like to position themselves? There's such a broad range of approaches. So they begin to locate themselves. And I think for viewers too, they can go on the journey. Each individual artwork will give them a journey. Another lovely example is a work by Alex Martinez-Rowe. And it's simply a uh, framed postcard by the very famous feminist philosopher Lucy Irigare. And if you read that postcard, it's written to Alex and it came about because Alex um, had the opportunity to go and meet her um, after she was at a conference and um, she gave her a particular present of uh, pomegranate replenishing uh, syrup and Lucy has written back to Alex to thank her for that gift and what a joy it was. So that's an example of, you know, when you enter into that work, you will read that postcard and enter into that particular world of that artwork. It's Not You, It's Me is showing now at the Fiona and Sydney Meyer Gallery located at 40 Dodd Street, South Bank, and it's showing until the 29th of March. Now, uh, there is a fairly complicated URL, so I would just recommend Googling Fiona and Sydney Meyer Gallery, and you'll find all the details you need. Otherwise, you can go to fineart-music.unimelb.edu.au forward slash events, but it gets (laughs) even more complicated from there. So, Monsley, thank you so much for joining us at Triple R today and uh, it sounds like a fascinating exhibition. Uh, Richard, thank you. It's been a total delight to be with you. Thank you. Please come along. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 